90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty good, except for the fact I forgot to wish you happy birthday. Yeah, happy birthday yourself. That's crazy. <laughs> We're five years old. Right. Uh, who ever thought that we would not have a life for so long? <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, and obviously our old adult brains forgot. Yeah, it was our five-year anniversary in January. So that's um, unbelievable. Thanks to everyone that's still out there. I hope Steve's still out there. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's yeah. been with us a long time. <laughs> But, I mean, yes, thanks to everybody who's made it uh, possible and encouraged us to continue doing this, because at times during the week, if we both had a really busy week, it's hard to hard to push through sometimes. Oh. But the positive comments and the funny things that you write in the listener surveys, uh, the funny comments that you leave on our blog, even though I generally don't approve blog comments, uh, <laughs> they all make it really worth it. Uh, yeah, they really do. I'm so excited. Um just the other day, I was going to text you, and you called halfway in between my texts. Like, I was on the, you know, fourth word, and you called me. And I thought, man, that's weird. That only happens with my husband. And I thought, well, you're probably the next person that I talk to the most. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, 100% that's true. So, <laughs> so, yeah, not surprising. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, so it's the, the five-year birthday of the show, and I've had a couple people message on the various platforms saying, how do I get my stickers? Uh, and you don't have to be a Patreon supporter to get stickers. If you want stickers, uh, just shoot us an email, uh, mm -hmm. show at don'tpanicgeocast.com, and we will get those in the mail to you. Yeah, absolutely. I still I only have a few left, so we're probably going to have to make a new order soon, but we will keep stickers in supply, so... Head us that way, and we will get some for you. And through the support of patrons, uh, we've been able to send microphones so we have good sound quality uh, to our guests. And we're going to have several guest shows coming up here over the next few weeks, which is really exciting. And the, the good audio quality is because of you all. We're not shipping around that one microphone. And <laughs> the, the one microphone that's been at JPL for, can finally just live there for when we interview folks from JPL. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. We're going to have to search our, search our um, episode list and be like, it's in Malasky's office. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, yeah, that's that's wonderful. I will say my road mic is very sad on the shelf in my lab, but that's okay. He'll get some use sometime. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know about you. It's been a really wet week here. Yeah, it's been very gray, dreary, misty, rainy, borderline sleety, but not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that good old uh, Oklahoma weather. I say that, but that's actually not true because January is usually our driest month. Um, but we're looking like that we're going to be in the top 10 wettest Januarys this year. January's not over yet. Um, but yeah, it's actually doing a lot of good. It's doing a lot of good for the grass that's dormant, but it's still doing good for that. Uh, it's doing a lot of good for some of the drought we've got going on in Oklahoma because it's definitely helping to recharge the water table. Yes, and 
I think aquifers would be a good thing to talk about because my engineering based mind, I know when I was younger for sure, I was like, but how do you drill into the ground and get water? Like, are you drilling into a pipe? Or like, how, how does this, how is dirt holding water? Well, okay, that's a pretty bad conceptualization of what happens. Uh, but the truth is pretty interesting too. Right, exactly. And I mean, anyone that's gone to any sort of public science event probably hears, you know, yeah, they're lakes underground, right? Like, I think people think of aquifers as caves filled with water. And that's what we have to, you know, tap into to get water out of the ground. Which is also not true. Not true. <laughs> I mean, caves do filled with water, but those aren't aquifers. <laughs> right. And generally, if you're drilling a well and you hit a cave and your drill bit takes, you know, that nice five to 20 foot dive and <laughs> scares everybody to death on the yeah. platform, uh, you case that section and go on. Uh, yes, exactly right. Um, so this is my favorite talk that we do. I mean, it's a lecture that we do in my non-majors class, just because, like you said, there's a lot of misconceptions about groundwater and aquifers. But water is one of those things everybody can get behind because, well, I asked the class, why do we need water? And they all look at me and they're like, well, we have to have it to drink to live. And I say, you're wrong. Water is what makes beer. That's why it's the most important resource. Exactly. And yes. unlike, uh, unlike water, beer is self-sterilizing, right? Exactly. <laughs> Not quite, but that's what I said. Uh, yeah, yeah. Tastes better than pee anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we start when we talk about water, and we start by talking about where is Earth's water, because I think this blows some minds, too. It definitely blew mine when I started, you know, researching this as a young undergrad in geology. Um, and the water cycle hasn't changed that much since then, but... <laughs> Only I mean, minor alterations. Exactly, exactly. Climatic swings and geographic shifts. <laughs> We're still in the realm of climate variability instead of actual climate change since my undergrad, True. but yeah. Um, only 3% of Earth's water is freshwater. Yeah, I think everybody would have said, well, most of the water is in the oceans, but I right. don't know. You know. Okay, you say, well, 90%, all right, let's see, 70% of the Earth is covered by water, right. roughly. Uh-huh. So I would have been like, oh, it's probably a 70-30 split. Not That's even what close. I, yeah, or maybe, you know, 75, 25. But yeah, only 3%. But what's creepy, I mean, 70% of that 3%, well, right now, is in ice caps and glaciers. Right. <laughs> so. <laughs> and surface water is a whopping uh, 0.3%. So that would be the stuff in the soil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And. and that- Rivers and all that kind of stuff. Right. So 0.3% is lakes, swamps, which is still freshwater. Yeah. And rivers. And then what's remaining, that stuff is groundwater. Yeah. So about 30% of the 3%, also known as roughly 1%. Exactly. (laughs) And that's what we as humans use. 1%. That's crazy. Right. And the, we, there are consequences to using that water. I mean, yes, it does get recharged because of the water cycle, but as we'll see where this water goes into these aquifers, uh, 
it's a complicated process and pulling water out can have some long-term ramifications. Right. Exactly. Um, so (laughs) I love it. I had a, a TA and one of my really good friends, Beth made this, um, made a lecture for my students and she eloquently put it um that the earth is like a giant analogy <laughs> and it is but it's not just filled with water it's filled with dirt and water um and this third three 30% of 3% is the stuff that we as humans need but we don't just use it for ourselves right so we use it for um agriculture too and not all the, you know, lots of municipalities get their water directly from lakes, but about half of the U.S. uses groundwater for drinking. Right. And I mean, I've definitely had the experience of, you know, you have well water and sometimes you have sulfur water. Yep, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> We've got lovely well water, so that's fine. Um, but there's a lot of problems with aquifer water, too, which we'll get to as well. But I think we need to explain what an aquifer is is because like we said it's not a cave filled with water underground and where this water is is really hard to understand because it's in rocks yes and you say it's not a cave filled with water underground but if you open any intro geology textbook and look at their drawing of an aquifer you totally see where people think it's a cave filled with water underground oh that's so true because we have these layers of rock and then this big shaded area between them that's blue and it says confined aquifer unconfined aquifer or water and oh i see why people think it's a cave uh okay that is very true the same is true with oil and gas um i got into a huge argument with a a gentleman about if you know we're supposed to drill down and we find oil and they're in these lakes and so then the argument ensued on some sort of engineering topic about drilling into these lakes and yeah (laughs) it was rough but you're right that's the that's the diagram I have in front of me right now, too. It looks like lakes underground. Yes. <laughs> and it's kind of mind-blowing to think that this water actually is water that's just sitting in rocks. But we got to get there. So, you know, where is this water at? This aquifer is basically an underground storage for water. That's what we tap into. Where's it at? Well, so the, the water is in the what we call the pore space of the rocks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which are the little spaces between the grains that make up the rocks. Right. So we're talking about sedimentary rocks when we're talking about these pore spaces. So the grains are anything, quartz, feldspars usually, that's the type of mineralogy we're working on. Um, you know, little pieces of other rocks, stuff like that. And if you pack them together, there's space in between them. It's like everyone always uses this analogy. I don't know why. Volleyballs in a room. Right? And so you fill this room with volleyballs, and there's lots of space in between the volleyballs. And all those spaces are what we call pores. And the amount of pore space is a measure that we call porosity. Right, and so there are some mathematical games you can play that if all of your particles are perfect spheres and you have ideal packing, what's the porosity of the rock? (laughs) Exactly Or if you have non-ideal packing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because usually your quartzes and feldspars aren't shaped like volleyballs. (laughs) 
Exactly. And, you know, we mainly talk about, like you said, sedimentary rocks and sandstones for aquifers. Uh-huh. Uh, other I mean, igneous rocks have a porosity. It's just tiny. Correct. And also you can store water in fractures in any type of rock. So not all aquifers are just in sedimentary rocks. Right. So you've got this rock and... I don't know. Some people talk about it like a sponge, but that's not really right either. No. Because we're not relying on surface tension to hold it into like some sort of wicking fiber uh-huh. or Correct. capillary action. So it's not really a sponge either. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you but, cannot, you can never get all of the water out. I feel like you can dry out a sponge, but you can't ever get all the water out of a rock. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, okay, you've got this, you've got this little chunk of sandstone and you drop it in water and water will eventually fill the pore space. Yep. So we we drill down into this very porous sandstone that's filled with water, and we put a little screen up so we don't bring chunks of rock up too, mm-hmm. and water then will drain into our well. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a super simplified version, but we're not done yet because just having the pore space isn't enough to make that happen. And, you know, I said that, like the water will eventually fill all the pores. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So what you need to worry about is how connected those pores are. And that is what we call permeability. So it's a measure of the interconnectedness of the pores within a rock. Yeah, and so you can think of porosity. We generally report that as a percent. Like this rock is has a porosity of 30%. Correct. So 70% of it is rock, 30% of it is air or water or empty space or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um. And then the permeability is like sort of like what's the what's the effective area that you can push things through? Mm-hmm. Like what's the effective aperture? If you were to take a solid piece of something with no porosity or permeability, like let, let's say glass, because that's pretty close, mm-hmm. what size hole would you have to drill in that to be able to push the same amount of fluid through with the same pressure differential? Okay. That's sort of what permeability is. Yep. Mm-hmm. Except for all the little holes already there. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is a measure called tortuosity, which gets real complicated. Yeah. <laughs> which means, you know, you can't just drill one single hole and they all come through. They've got to flow through these little pathways where there is permeability. So tortuosity can slow things down quite a bit. But what you want in an aquifer is good porosity and good permeability. But what is that mean in terms of permeability well i mean higher values are better yes mm-hmm. uh, yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's some weird unit right oh okay you're thinking darcy's yes well when we talk about flow okay yes. so you can do that you can also report it as an area yeah mm-hmm. um 10 to the minus 16 10 to the minus 14 yeah. Meter squared. Yeah, it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yep. 10 to the minus 19, not so good. <laughs> You'd still suck it out of there, though. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, you know, we always talk about this in terms of meter squared. Uh, I know you talk about it in Darcy's or Milla Darcy's. Yes. Every geologist and petroleum engineer talks about it in terms of Darcy's. 
Right, but if you have to do math with it and other things, you like SI units, so you go with meter squared instead of this crazy one Darcy <laughs> is 10 to the minus 12 meter squared. <laughs> we don't like math. <laughs> I mean, it's 0.2 unicorns. That's also basically the same thing. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I, think, I think those stats were on my well pump we put in the other day. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, sir. I ordered a 0.5 unicorn well pump. Yes, 0.5 unicorns per hour. <laughs> but that brings us to pumps, right? So this stuff doesn't always flow, right? Yeah, so just like in a pipe, if you <laughs> if you took a pipe, a piece of PVC, went to Home Depot and put a cap on one end, filled it with water, put a cap on the other end, laid it down on your table and drilled into it, guess what would happen? <laughs> Nothing. Exactly. <laughs> That's a good analogy. Hmm. Yeah, so you would have to pump or provide energy, do the work to lift that water against the force of gravity. Mm -hmm. Now, if you were to take that same pipe and incline it at an angle, then yeah. you would get water shooting out of the hole you drilled because there's now hydraulic head. There is hydrostatic pressure or pressure exerted by the weight of the water above where you are right. that's pressurizing that aquifer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so... That's that line, right? It represents this potentiometric surface that is the water table. Right. Exactly. Uh, and yeah, so we would think of it as like you could draw contours of equipotential, mm -hmm. which is sort of like what's the topography of the water table? Right. Which is, which is determined by the topography of the land in many cases. To a certain extent, yes. Uh, because, you know, if you just start digging a hole... It's probably not going to fill with water in most places. Some places it will. <clears throat> but if you start digging a hole close to a riverbank, your hole's going to fill with water pretty fast because your water table is pretty close to that. So that river's filled up at the potentiometric surface that is the water table. Right. And so the, the pipe that we talked about before would be an example of what we, we call a confined aquifer. Mm -hmm. So there's something that prohibits the flow of water through it. Uh, like a cap rock in oil um, mm -hmm. or a cap formation or a confining unit or people call them different things. Yeah. Uh, that would be the pipe. Right. Exactly. It's and not so in to... that you can, you can pressurize it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Now the fun part. <laughs> yeah. And so if you've got a bunch of water piled up, you know, you've got some big topographic slope and there's rain and that rain diffuses down or not diffuses. That's a, misnomer mm -hmm. that rain percolates <laughs> down through go. the soil <laughs> and uh, th the water enters the water table through that level of the water table and into this aquifer and then way downhill you drill a well and you mm -hmm. punch through that top layer of uh, confining material mm -hmm. that's like drilling the hole in our pipe and not only does your hole fill with water it shoots out, and it shoots out until it reaches the level of the water table. So if the water table is 30 feet above your head, you get a 30-foot fountain for free. <laughs> exactly. And those wells have their own name, and those are called artesian wells. Yes, and they are pretty cool to go see. Yes. Um, and so we have a bunch of naturally occurring, well, sort of naturally occurring, artesian springs and then we have some artesian wells here in oklahoma in the town of sulfur 
There's actually a huge new, since you've been here, John, a huge new uh, hotel called the Artesian, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but we can talk about those artesian wells too. But so if you drill your well above that water table surface, that's when you're going to need pumps to get stuff out. Whether you've got this confined aquifer or an unconfined aquifer, you're not getting water out of it freely unless you put some energy into sucking it out. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So confined and unconfined aquifers. Those are two things that we talk about too. Um, so these unconfined aquifers are ones that are in direct contact with the recharge area, whereas these confined aquifers, like John was talking about, are capped by an impermeable layer. They get recharged somewhere far away. Yeah, and so an unconfined aquifer, if you've got a big formation of sandstone and it rains, you know, you're know you going to start filling that pore space, and the pore space is going to fill as much as it rains. Uh-huh. Uh, and gravity is going to be pulling it down, so you're always going to have sort of that lake idea like there's a surface which is the water table yeah but i mean would you even i'm trying to think of you know if you're how you can picture it i guess you would be able to see it maybe it's really hard to see porosity even in a sandstone that has 30 percent, which is a crazy number right you can't have any more than like 47 percent porosity or something like that or it's not a rock anymore <laughs> um I, yeah there, there are grossly unconfined things at the bottom of the ocean that are basically suspended sediment that have porosities of like 80%. Yeah, that's and that's crazy. Not a rock, but... But not a rock. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, I mean, you can still have like a rock that has 30% porosity, which is an insanely high number. Like, if you had that and you were drilling an oil well, you would be so happy. And it's like, you can't really tell. So if your rock, you know... It's just, that's interesting to think. It's not a lake, you know? You can't tell there's that much porosity in it. Right. And yeah. so, like, p- packed Ottawa sand is about 32%. Yeah, there you go. Uh, okay, a- so if you uh, if you drill into an unconfined aquifer, then the water in your well will come up the well to wherever the, the water table is. Mm-hmm, right. And so you generally, you know, want to case your well down a little bit because then if the water table gets drawn down any, you don't want to go dry. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas if you drill into a confined aquifer, you either get that artesian well or you can have a well where the water comes up maybe even pretty close to the surface. It's pressurized and sort of squirts up the well, but not out. Right. Yeah. So that's nice. Yeah. Then you don't have to have as big of a pump. It doesn't have to go as deep in the well. And it doesn't have to be as expensive a proposition as you faced when your well pump failed. Oh, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting, though. So everywhere you are, the water table depth is different. You know, like my um, my brother and sister-in-law, they live right on the Iowa River. And their well is a little bit deeper than this. But their water table is eight feet. <laughs> eight feet down. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, in Arkansas, that's like... You're hitting solid rocket, twelve inches. <laughs> right. So. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's crazy. So eight feet. Mine's at 120. Was that 120? No, it was 140, which was way deeper than I thought it was. Yeah, that is very deep. Mm-hmm. And that's actually still probably not in rock. So lots of residential wells are just in the gravelly, unconsolidated sediment that's on top of the basement rock um just like you said in arkansas you know 
you don't have to go down very far and you're really drilling right mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, i remember when they drilled some wells for a residential geothermal system here and and it was hard going uh, there were only like uh, 70 or 80 foot wells and it was still really uh, hard going and there are places there in arkansas we found this out the last time we went to hot springs we went on a um a field trip with some arkansas state geologists and they were saying that there's a whole area that they can't actually near hot springs that they can't actually develop because the shale there so that is this that is a confining unit um shale does have some porosity it has virtually no permeability though is eight thousand feet so you'd have to drill an eight thousand <laughs> foot well for water and then it wouldn't be fresh so it doesn't matter right yeah so i thought that was interesting like places where you literally couldn't drill into the ground and get water so yeah mm-hmm. well and so you can also have these weird things too which i, I kind of like these you've got a little strip of some confining unit up above all the others and it's not a continuous thing so you don't get a confined aquifer but you have like this little bowl looking thing in cross section of some impermeable material and so when the water uh infiltrates the ground it fills this little bowl up (laughs) and uh we call that a a perched aquifer (laughs) like how lucky would you be to find that little bowl (laughs) yeah you just got this tiny little aquifer all to yourself yeah, and it's going to be probably much shallower than mm. drilling into anything else. Mm-hmm. And so you said something earlier that once you hit that water table, you want to keep going because the water table might change. And lots of things can make the water table change, but the quickest way to make the water cha- table change is to start taking too much water out of the aquifer anywhere. It doesn't even have to be beside you. It'll still affect your water table because it's all connected. It is, but when you're pumping out of your well, you create something that sounds like something out of the DSM uh, called the cone of depression. I know. I love it. (laughs) So, I mean, you can do this with a straw and a drink. You just look at it and you see how your drink goes down around the straw as you're drinking. Right. So it it looks sort of like one of those wormhole drawings on the front of a Stephen Hawking book or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's as you pull the water out, you're pulling water close to the well first mm-hmm. and water's having to flow in from further away. Uh, water, water flowing through these stones is a process that takes time. So you get these sort of Newton looking cooling curve shapes or diffusion yeah. shapes. Yeah. That's and you true. get these little cones of depression that form. So if you pump too fast, the cone will go below the bottom of your well and suddenly you have a dry well until the aquifer right around you can recover. And it'll make that sound like you're trying to get the last of your soda out of your straw. (laughs) I'm not so sure about that one. (laughs) Hey, it does. I'm sure it happens. (laughs) But the point is, if you had a perch taco for all to yourself, you could probably, you know, do a lot better. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's still... It still always amazes me how little people understand aquifer systems when it's something that you just take for granted. Like, yeah, I'm just going to stick this straw in the earth and I'm going to suck stuff out. Um, But you can use these same sort of, the same thing we're talking about now, drilling for water. It's the same as drilling for oil and gas. And so you can imagine this is where, this is why fracking became a thing, right? It's because you drill into these rocks 
and you don't get enough of whatever you want out of it, water, oil, gas. And so you make your own porosity and permeability. And that's what fracking is. Yeah, so we make big cracks and we prop them open with sand and the magic blend of things. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that creates that very high permeability pathway for all of the fluids to get drained from the surrounding porosity. So earlier, John made that joke about Ottawa sand. <laughs> and so this is a sand that we use in fracking. And it's the, it's the equivalent of volleyballs <laughs> because it's this perfect and it's like this great spherical, clean quartz sand, right? And so you get more porosity for your buck when you're using this Ottawa sand and you just crack everything open and then you fill those cracks with this sand that makes this great porosity and permeability. And there you go. Right. We used it in the lab doing gas hydrate experiments all the time because it was super reproducible. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's amazing that something like that exists. There's this natural sand that we're mining because it's basically perfect little balls. Right. And I did the experiment of like, I'm going to take a, a beaker and I'm going to pack it with so much sand and then I'm going to take a graduated cylinder and I'm going to start pouring water in until it doesn't hold any more water. <laughs> yeah. It came out at like 31 and a half percent. It's That's amazing. Awesome. That's super cool. Hmm interesting so that, that's sort of the ideal case but that's a slight sidetrack yes yes uh, it is. <laughs> sorry so <laughs> but the, so you have this drawdown you can have neighboring wells draw down so it might not even be your fault you could be inside somebody else's cone of depression mm-hmm. or if everybody's pulling too much out of the aquifer the whole level just like if we all were pulling too much out of a lake the whole level goes down yeah, and if you do that on a large enough scale, it's not just the whole level of the aquifer that goes down. So you're not just depleting the water table, but you're going to start to have subsidence of the ground above that water table. And here is one of those long-term consequences that people don't realize. <laughs> yeah, this stuff is really scary. I mean, this can be a lot of subsidence. Yeah, so if you start pulling the water out and there's a lot of weight of rock above it, when you take something out, now there's a empty space there and, you know, nature pours a vacuum and this isn't really a vacuum, <laughs> but, uh, it collapses. Yeah, this is nuts. Um, so you can have subsidence over a wide area or like John said, you can have these collapses and you see this in Arizona, a bunch, um, you have these big earth fissures and that's part of the cause of it is that there's a lot of people that live out there in the desert now that probably shouldn't be and they're taking so much water out of the already deep and depleted aquifers there that the ground is literally just cracking open and collapsing right but you know think about if you've got a a drink that's not you've got those little sonic ice pellets that everybody loves to chew on that yeah people that chew on ice and (laughs) yeah and you don't uh don't fill it up so that the ice is floating but just fill it up some and you start drinking and you'll see that the ice shifts and things reorient and that ice level starts going down this is also sort of how you get you know a face full of ice (laughs) 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 which is things reorienting if you're drinking out of it without a straw um but so this this reorientation happens there's subsidence or collapse and 
well, one of my favorite pictures, which you had in your presentation, is from the San Joaquin Valley, and it's showing uh, from 1925 to 1977, the subsidence in the area, and it's like a telephone pole worth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's unreal. It's <laughs> it's hard to, um, you need to look, you can look this picture up. It's pretty famous of this farmer standing next to this telephone pole because it, it's hard to imagine that the ground was all the way up there a telephone pole's worth higher in and since yeah and since we're not losing solid material that is the pore space loss so yeah if you were to fill that area with water that's how much water that aquifer can no longer store mm-hmm. it can rain all at once but that pore space is gone and it will never be able to store that much water again right because it's yeah it's not you can't reinflate that balloon Right. It'd be like trying to reinflate a balloon with a car sitting on top of it. Exactly. (laughs) So this is the importance of, you know, slow, well, recharge is slow, right? So it's the importance of understanding what the recharge area for these aquifers is so you don't, you know, suck this stuff out to the point of these collapses. Because that's exactly right. Now that's a useless amount of space, whereas before it held all this water. Um and so knowing where your recharge area is and assuring that you're not, if you're far away from that, you're not drawing it out too much so you don't have this happen. Although it's happening, obviously, all the time. Right. Yeah, we don't pay really great attention to that. And, I mean, a recharge area is just where that rock unit that is your aquifer is in contact with the surface. And so then any rain that happens goes directly into that aquifer it's sort of like a watershed but for your underground not river or not lake correct or not lake (laughs) yes correct that is right so as soon as you start paving a bunch of stuff you could be doing damage even though you're not taking water out you're doing damage because you're covering up a lot of these recharge areas right Mm -hmm. yeah so lots of subsidence and this is really prevalent in California, in the San Joaquin Valley. And so we say, why do we care? I have rarely been to the San Joaquin Valley, but I do like almonds. And 99% of the country's almonds come from California. And if you start to deplete and get rid of that aquifer, you have to find alternatives to watering all the crops. It's not just almonds. It's tons and tons of crops. Um, Half the country's vegetables, fruits, and nuts are grown there. You got to figure out what to do with that. This is a great point in class where I say, what do you do? <laughs> and yeah. we get into some really good fights <laughs> at this point. <laughs> right, because, I mean, there are ethical now questions about, well, what food should we eat? Because they're a strain on the ecosystem. Right. Like, how much... How much money are you willing to pay for an almond? You know, they're already kind of expensive. And then, you know, you have to go into stuff like desalinization, which we should probably talk to somebody that knows something more than we do. I'm just assuming you don't know a ton about this either. No. (laughs) Because you think, oh, California, it's right by the ocean. Just, we'll just do desalinization. Well, there's a lot of problems that go along with that too. The only thing I can think of about that is, you know, you better have a, Big electricity connection. <laughs> exactly. So lots of power, lots of lots of jobs to run these massive plants, 
And then what do you do when, what do you do with all that salt and all the stuff you take out of the ocean? And everybody is, immediately says, so you just put it back in the ocean. And then you talk about how that ruins the, you know, ecology in that area, um, making the water that much saltier. Then you make these dead zones. But the other thing is, like, what happens when the rains come back and you don't need extra water because you just have enough rain? So that's that's an issue, too. Um, you know, what happens to the plant, the desalinization plant, when you have to shut it down because you got enough rain? That's crazy. It's it, This is not an easy thing to solve. <laughs> No, not at all. Yeah. And it's infinitely interesting because I think that we don't probably, we probably don't talk enough about it. And there's a lot of water wars that go on, especially here in Oklahoma. Um, Arkansas is a lot rainier than we are. Um, but we're also a lot rainier than a lot of parts of Texas, right? And so they want our water and all this crazy stuff. Yeah, it is definitely a commodity. Oh, yes, 100%. And it will be even more of a commodity. Um, T. Boone Pickens, if anyone listening has heard of him, the um, geology school at Oklahoma State is named for this guy. Big oil magnate, super rich. But he started, so when you drill an oil and gas well, you have to buy the rights to the oil and gas beforehand, right? So you buy what's called the mineral rights. It doesn't matter who owns it on the surface. You can own your land on the surface. That doesn't mean you own the minerals underneath your land, which is crazy. Right. And it's like, you know, I we still own the mineral rights to property that we owned in Colorado, though we sold the surface property. Yep. See, there you go. Yeah. Um, and that's smart. Somebody else owns my mineral rights, which annoys me to no end. But anyway, so what T. Boone did is he went a long time ago out west And he started buying all these mineral rights. And it wasn't for oil and gas or mining. It was for water. Yeah. Yeah. That's smart. (laughs) Yeah. In Colorado, especially, there was a big market for water rights on property. Mm -hmm. Yep. Exactly. And so imagine if you started buying all that up, you know, 50 years ago when no one thought about that kind of thing. Right. Mm Yeah. Yeah. It's super, super interesting. So all this development and all this agriculture really affect the water table. And a lot of times once you, you know, take that out, you can't put it back in. And so it's something we need to think about (laughs) a lot. Um, If you're worried about it enough that you want to move, Nebraska is probably the best place to be, actually, um, because the Platte River is a big recharge area for the Ogallala aquifer, which is the biggest aquifer. I think it's actually the biggest aquifer in the world. Yeah, it is massive. Yeah. And so it's basically, if you just think about the central plains of the U S essentially all of that is underlain by this one aquifer, the Ogallala. And there's a lot of farming that goes along here. Um, less people, but tons of farming and it takes out lots of water. And in Texas, there's not a lot of recharge there, and there's a lot of agriculture where it's really hot. And they've got meters and meters of subsidence from that is that's happening because of the overdrawing for agriculture in the Ogallala Aquifer. But it's actually getting recharged at a pretty high rate up in Nebraska. you got the North Platte River, nice watersheds, and they're not sucking it out as hard as they are in Texas. Right. Yeah. So we're 
Now, monitoring all this a lot better than we used to, and actually, you can probably talk about this more, John. I mean, there's a lot of really cool um, instrumentation that goes along with trying to figure this stuff out. Yeah, environmental environmental geophysics is cool again. Yes, it sure is. <laughs> uh, so using things like electromagnetic methods, ground-penetrating radars, uh, simple well, like test wells, they're all all techniques that are used. And there's also been some pretty cool studies about how uh, passage of teleseismic waves from remote earthquakes can temporarily increase or decrease the permeability of an aquifer. Wow. Just like, yeah. it's just like a slinky or something stretching it and, and not, yeah. So, oh. so you, well, so you can uh, basically do damage that oh. then heals. So you're creating a fracture zone that then heals pretty quickly on the, on the order of weeks. Wow. That's super cool. Yeah, so you have these pressure perturbations. So it's sort of a, a natural fracking process because the, these long period waves go through, cause pressure spikes inside the aquifer because the water can't uh, move fast enough because of the permeability of the rock. Uh, so it fractures, and then you get a temporary days to weeks long boost in permeability where you can produce more. That is crazy. I mean, you probably shouldn't, but. Right. Why not? <laughs> um that's really interesting i mean there's a lot to say about aquifers in general i mean there's more to say on the ogallala we've got some really weird aquifer action here in the city of norman um and then some really cool fractured aquifers because like i said there's not just sedimentary rock everywhere you get all different types of rocks where there are wells in them and igneous rocks depend on fractures but then when you get fractured sedimentary rock you can do some weird stuff yeah <laughs> really weird stuff with your aquifers but that's probably another show i think so uh and in fact you know i think that uh, there's probably a lot that could be written about some of these topics mm-hmm. and uh in today's favorite segment of the show we're going to talk about that so it's time for fun paper friday yay I can't even talk about it. <laughs> right. And uh, so you win the award for shortest fun paper. We've had one that was a one-word abstract, uh, right. which was no. And that was by, uh, by Sue Huff. Uh, this is shorter. Yep. <laughs> um, the Unsuccessful Self-Treatment of a Case of Writer's Block by Dennis Upper, Veterans Administration Hospital, Brockton, Massachusetts. Just a blank page. It says references, and it says portions <laughs> of this paper were not presented. <laughs> yeah. Portions of this paper were not presented at the 81st Annual American Psychological Association Convention, Montreal, Canada, yada, yada. Uh, reprints may be obtained from Dennis Upper, Behavior Therapy Unit, blah, blah. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Published revi- without revision. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Reviewers A's comments. I studied this manuscript very carefully with lemon juice and x-rays and have not detected a single flaw in either design or writing style. I suggest it be published without revision. Clearly, it is the most concise manuscript I've ever seen, yet it contains sufficient detail to allow other investigators to replicate Dr. Upper's failure. (laughs) In comparison with the other manuscripts I get... Uh, from you containing all the complicated detail this one was a pleasure to examine surely we can find a place for this paper in the journal perhaps on the edge of a blank page (laughs) i love it 
that this was this was in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis in 1974. <laughs> Fun papers from the past. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, this is, when they say uh, I've examined it carefully with lemon juice and x-rays, that's because it was actually mailed copies to people to review. Exactly. Uh, so you could do that, not these PDFs that we all get sent now. And then we we're like, exactly. oh, the figures didn't show up, and they sent another PDF. Now, but they're, they're in the wrong order, or upside down. Uh, no, none of that. This was real paper getting sent around. Lemon juice and x-rays. <laughs> oh, this is beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And I think it is important because uh, it can be really hard. To write an academic paper. <gasps> Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, you get really, I mean, you get really blocked. It's real hard to have people look at your, to put yourself out there, right? Because it's like, what if you get denied? And I, I definitely think this doesn't get talked about enough, especially for people who are just starting out in academics or even grad students or undergrads that are working on research papers. Everybody gets denied. Oh, yeah. Everybody. Oh, yeah. And we should talk about it more because it's not a big deal. And it's taken me, you know, four years to get over that fact. And it's like, yeah, people are going to judge you. They're going to say your stuff sucks. But guess what? Some people say it's good. And it's just how it is. <laughs> exactly. But even the most famous among us got denied and probably still do. Absolutely. Yeah. So... It is kind and, of an important point, even though it's funny. Yeah, and it is, you know, like I, in some papers I've written, you you say, okay, I've got so much to talk about. I've got 15 experiments worth of data, and yeah, this is, I've got a cool story. And you write it all up, and you're like, oh, yeah, this was, this is good. This is, it has all the cool things in it. It's easy to understand, and it's a page and a half long. like five years can't be summed up in a page and a half right <laughs> and generally no it's you've left out a lot of detail because you are such a specialist in this uh, that this paper sums it up for you but nobody else in the world correct you have uh -huh. to define the terms in those you know four paragraphs <laughs> true and uh, but sometimes that is the case and there was uh, one subject where i made this cool little heat transfer model and uh, fault heat generation model. And I thought, oh yeah, this is going to be a great manuscript. And I wrote it all up and including the mathematical derivation, it was like page and a half to, <laughs> like, oh, well, that's why nobody's published this because if you, if you sit down and do it, it's relatively it's trivial. It's pretty easy. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, surely there's some fun papers out there about that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. How to cook um, spaghetti. <laughs> Well, I mean, there, there is the one where the medical field basically reinvented integral calculus because they didn't know about it. That's true. That's true. Uh, <laughs> uh, but this one was much more fun to read. <laughs> yes, this, this was great. And uh, one of the few times where reviewer comments are public. Exactly. <laughs> so th this was open peer review before that was a thing. See? So progressive in the 70s. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, if you have a paper on writer's block or overcoming writer's block that you think we should read, or you would like to submit your comments on this manuscript, you can still do it all these years later. 
Shannon, how can they do that? You can send us your comments, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Together we are at don'tpanicgeo. You can find us in the Slack chat room. On We are the part of the Software Underground on the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. Without you, we couldn't keep all these interviews we're going to have going. So thank you for that. If you would like to support us, you may do so. Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.